Jack Stein, a very sleepy, sleep-deprived, borderline, I think, Spike, I think it's fair to say that I'm dipping into psychosis at this point. All right! Yeah. (laughs) Lean in, my friend. Because when you're this sleep-deprived, man, it's not, this is not good. This is bad. This is uh, most, I should not be operating heavy machinery. I should not be... (laughs) Dude, I don't I mean not. to laugh, but it's not like you're driving a semi down the freeway. <laughs> know, you're telling but... folks what's going on in the community. You're giving right. our take on how life is right. and what we can do to have a better existence together. You this can do this true. inebriated, half asleep. You can do this. You're fine. <laughs> you okay, can do so this. I will tell the story as to why I got maximum four and a half hours of sleep last night. But before we get to that, let us actually do our job, Spike O'Neill, shall we? And let's talk about the uh, Wallingford encampment, because this is something that I care very much about. Why is it that there are encampments near schools, Spike O'Neill? It's something that I have never understood. There are uh, parents that are deeply upset about this. We have a cut here from Como News, I believe. Is this me? I think Chris, that's- <laughs> okay, this, this is, folks, remember, folks, Jack's the one who hasn't slept. Spike's the one who doesn't know what he's doing. Now that we've identified who's who and what our roles are. So let me let me let me play this clip then. Thank you. In this situation, this is just not acceptable to me. It's child endangerment. Eli Hosier says for about a year he's been waiting for this illegal and troubled encampment to go. And the one thing he and other parents told me they still don't have an end date for the encampment. I just think it's just ridiculous that this is allowed to happen that close to a school for that long. He's incensed that instead of housing for the unhoused, they learned fire extinguishers with instructions on how to use them are now on site. Portable toilets are coming and trash pickup is regular. The language primarily is about how they're going to help, you know, with fire extinguishers or things that would sanitation, things that would help them, but it's not really addressing the public safety. We just don't see the action. We don't get the firm dates. He says that doesn't help his 10-year-old son, Ben, or any of the students at John Stanford International School, less than 400 feet from the camp. I go home after dropping my son off, and I literally am just thinking constantly, oh my gosh, it's, something could happen. Spike, here's what I don't understand. Sure. As, as, a, as a society, we have decided that certain things don't go next to each other, right? So right. if you wanted to set up a grenade and firework factory right next to a preschool, most people would say no. There is maybe the, a, a, a chance that something could go wrong. Uh, you know, a, a firework or a hand grenade could go off and it would be devastating for the little children at the preschool. We all agree that certain things don't belong next to other things. Like we wouldn't put a a, a waste management treatment center right next to a botanical garden, right? Or, we- or a candy factory. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, and I see what you're saying. You remember the far side cartoons? Yes. Yeah. Remember, remember when they had the attack dog training school next to the daycare center? Yes. Some things just don't belong <laughs> side by side. And, and this is the same encampment we talked about last week. Yeah. The one under I-5. Right, they call, and, they, and they call it, the, I think, the Palisade because it's on one side. It's Palisade uh, Boulevard, Palisade Park is the roadway mm, that's on the side. Yeah, this this is the homeless encampment that is under the elevated section of I five. Um, if you're if you're coming southbound, right by the Ship Canal Bridge, as you take the the express lanes uh, northbound, mostly uh, you can see them. You can see this this homeless encampment on both sides of the road. And the fact that it's still there is because, as we mentioned last week, this is a city property, but it's a state issue to remove yeah. these encampments from alongside the state's interstate freeway. So no one can really figure out who is responsible for getting these people out of this space. 
Now, the real problem is when you clear these folks, they come right back. And, and the reason it's a story today, and it should be a story today, is because it's right next to a school. I, I just have this question, Spike. I, I'm an adult. You're kind of an adult, right? I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. <laughs> if I, I thought that when I ascended to the age of 35 that I would be surrounded by other adults, people like Chris Martin, people like Andrew, responsible people out there. Yeah, and yet you chose radio, but go on. <laughs> and so I thought that the people who would be leading our cities or our states our country would be adults and what i have found spike o'neill is that this is not the case is that we are effectively led by people who are i i don't don't have the ability to pull the trigger on things that need to be done adults would handle this situation by saying those people cannot be there they cannot be there by that school that is dangerous that that is hazardous maybe not all of the homeless people maybe not 99 percent of them but most certainly the idea that something could go wrong at that school is very high. So that is something that we just cannot condone. That is the way that I believe an adult would handle this circumstance. And then all the other adults would go, you know what? I have sympathy for the homeless people, but I agree with you as well that they can't be next to a school. But for some reason, we've devolved into this kind of like, it's not my, like, it's very adolescent. It's not my responsibility. Hey, I'm not, I, don't, I don't use the living room, mom. Why do I have to clean up the living room? It's that kind of mentality. Where it's like, well, it's it's not it's not city property, it's state property. You guys have to clean it up. My thought is like, I'm I would be fine if anybody did it. I don't I don't really care what the legal part of it is. I don't really care what the the legal blockades might be. My priority first and foremost is those children. And so when I hear that it's a lot of like, hey man, what do you want me to do about it? It's like it just reminds me like these are all just adolescents effectively who are running things, and now we have dangerous circumstances as a result of that. Well, uh, you're exactly right, but here's my my take on this, yeah. is that these are human beings under the overpass. Right. And an adult thing would be to just clear them out and throw them aside, but we are a society, hopefully, a society of compassionate, rational adults. And we've elected officials in the western half of Washington, for good or bad, who tend to be on the more liberal, compassionate, inclusive side of the spectrum. Okay. So you can't just sweep these people out with a bulldozer and say good luck wherever you land. I mean, because that's what that's what some situations would be the most expeditious way to get this cleared out. Sure, right. And if it wasn't a school right there, it wouldn't be an issue. And I, I, sometimes I feel we often, uh, far too often, will make sure we're doing things to to care for our fellow citizen, which is important. We all understand that the homeless, the houselessness situation. I will one day learn how to say this respectfully. Wait, Spike, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Why do you, why do you say houselessness instead well, of homelessness? Well, I haven't I, heard that since I, I was in college. I, well, I've the unhoused. Mm, I've been told okay. that there are ways to respectfully respectfully refer to those experiencing homelessness, right. as opposed to just calling them the homeless. Okay. Okay. So, but I'm trying to find the right verbiage to make right, sure I do right. it, and that's part of the problem right there. That's a perfect example of the problem. We're so yeah. careful not to step on anybody's shoeless toes that we can't get anything done. <laughs> now, uh, while, while I am all for making sure that those experiencing homelessness, yes. the unhoused, are cared for in a compassionate and responsible way, but we also have a responsibility to the people who buy homes in this town, pay taxes in this town, property taxes in this town, and the schools we put in this town, that the children are going to be safe when they walk to school. To, to your point about not putting a fireworks factory across the street, we really can't let a dangerous situation 
exist 400, less than 400 feet from a school. Right. So, so last, like, last week when we talked about this, I said, look, if we, if we can't keep these people from this area, because we're talking about a place that is flat, covered, and relatively safe. Dry. For, for, dry, yes. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is you know, desirable real estate in the houseless community. And if we can't get them out of there and keep them out of there for the safety sake of the kids, then let's make it a, a tiny house village. Let's take away the concerns of the parents at that school. If I mean, first and foremost, get it out of there. The right. governor said last week it's got to go. It's unacceptable. And yet there it sits. I mean, we, well, we, we owe it to the families and the homeowners and the taxpayers to give their kids a safe place to go to school. I mean, let's face it. That school was there before even I-5 was there. That school's been there a long time. It's one of the more, uh, you know, vintage, I would say. Vintage. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, it's not a modern the school building. schools, yeah. Well, yeah, it's not a modern school building. It's an older building that has been refurbed and, and modernized to be a, a very, it's a jewel of the community. And okay. the Stafford International School is literally a jewel of the educational community. And those kids are lucky to have that facility to go to. They shouldn't have... They shouldn't be trained with fire extinguisher readiness and have garbage collection <laughs> on a regular basis for the homeless people. They're going to put up Santa cans outside. I right. mean, seriously, that's 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 not an optimal situation. So, Spike, just a quick clarification really quick. I, I was a homeless person for about a year of my life. I was homeless. I wow. did not have a home. I take no offense whatsoever when someone uses the phrase homeless. Okay. I think I think that is I think that it's a perfectly fine descriptor of of somebody. I think that referring to somebody as uh uh you know, I don't know, maybe they're derelict or they're, you know, they're they're, bum. You, you, they're a bomb, right. that's pretty harsh right. language. Okay, yeah, yeah. And when I was homeless though, Spike, you you just um opened up a synapse of memories in my in my brain when I was a a homeless guy in my in my mid 20s. It was a different kind of homelessness because the idea that we would be or camp anywhere in a public space was against our hobo rules, right? It was okay. against kind of our code of conduct. Okay. The idea that we would use drugs in a public space of which we did, you know, tons and tons and tons of drugs was a bad idea because the police, at least this was in Monterey, California, they would you would get arrested i mean you would get arrested for vagrancy right. and you would get arrested for drug use however comma if you were at your campsite in the woods you could do whatever you wanted you we were the lost boys we were the you know yeah. rufio rufio we yeah. were out there and robin williams would come by and he would teach us how to fly <laughs> you guys wrote so, some good drugs man <laughs> no so, I, I hear i hear what you're saying right. though those those were a different that's a different so, era so but what we have now is our uh, what i and this might sound harsh to people and i don't mean to be unkind to people who are homeless out there but i i know of people who are vehicularly homeless that right. is a different kind of homeless what we have now is a kind of homelessness that is entitled I deserve these things. I deserve this space. I deserve to have meals brought to me. It's a much different kind of mentality. And I think that this is why you get such brash and bold and, uh, you know, kind of in your face homelessness because they believe that they can get away with it because there are no adults to come in and say, you can't smoke dope in front of a Kroger, you yeah. have to go somewhere else, right? Well, you and, all, and, there also isn't right. the resources there there used to be with a much smaller percentage of the of the city community that were homeless. Now there are people who through economic, you know, instability or, or lack of economic opportunity who are forced to be in a situation where they're living in an encampment. There's just right. far too many to just hide in the woods. And people who feel entitled 
because they've been priced out of a city that they live in. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- that's their retaliation. Okay, I'm going to do whatever I oh, need to do I to survive. See. Yeah. And I, and I don't know. I've never, I have been so lucky, Jack. I've had a, a blessed and charmed and lucky life, a very privileged life, if I may throw the P word around. <laughs> I fully understand my, my privilege in my life. I've yeah. had it real soft all my life. I don't know what these folks are going through. But but because I, I, I drive up the freeway and I see folks who are encamped and I see these massive garbage piles next to their space. And I'm thinking, how can you what, what gives you the sense of entitlement as you as you refer to it so correctly? Yeah. What gives you the, the entitlement to just throw your garbage? If you're going to intrude upon public space to stay safe and warm and stay alive, I understand the necessity of that. There's got to be some responsibility to at least police your area. And not yeah. be, not be a blight on everybody who lives and travels in this city. I I'll mean, tell you. I'll tell you a quick story, Spike. Just a real quick story. There's a guy in my neighborhood. He's a he's a homeless guy, and he every uh, our trash day is on uh, Mondays, and so every Monday afternoon when I excuse me, it's on Tuesday. So every Monday afternoon when I roll out my trash cans. I see this guy coming down the block and what he wants to do is he wants to go through your recycling bin and he wants to take your cans. He doesn't bother anybody. He's very polite. And he asks if he, if he sees you, he asks, he says, do you mind if I take your cans? And every time I see him, I go, dude, no worries whatsoever. He has a little, um, like a little, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's like a little wheel like cart, a, little wheel cart, like a covered wagon okay. that he walks around with. And he's got his dog and he's a night. He's a nice person to interact with. And I am happy to give him my recyclables uh, for whatever endeavors he might pursue. I, I believe wholeheartedly that if and this might sound harsh to some people, but if there were homeless people out there who had a better attitude towards the city that is trying to help them, more people might want to help them. But when you have people who are throwing up graffiti, screaming into the middle distance at two o'clock in the afternoon, right. uh, you know, harassing, kicking somebody's dog so that it dies, as we, we read about uh, two oh. years ago. You know what I mean? There, there are so many throwing yeah. coffee in babies' faces. There are so many instances out there where the the community gets fed up with it and it's i think it's largely due to these outliers who feel as if they are entitled to run amok in the city and just do whatever kind of anarchic nonsense they want to and if if there was a a sincere push i believe from members of the homeless community to kind of separate themselves and say i'm actually trying to better my life i'm not one of these other people i think people would be more inclined to want to help those people as i am with the guy who collects my cans every monday uh, afternoon i think it's a fair assessment of the situation people and, and boy, you, you can take that over into any that example into any different story we have right whether it's a few bad cops a few bad teachers whatever right and i'm not equating this to that in any way shape or form but the folks who do abuse the, the grace of public space or, or interaction with the community that is kind of like doing what they can to help them. You're right. It, it soils everyone's opinion about those experiencing homelessness. And, and, but we're talking about the story in this and the school and these families that have this unsafe situation next to their school. It takes parents with and little kids on camera yeah. to get the governor to do what he's supposed to be doing or the city or state or whomever is responsible to either clear it out or make it safe. Yeah, I agree. Because taxpayers and parents deserve better. 
Yeah, we, we do, I think. And I think it's a real insult. And I'm, try, I'm not trying to do this thing where I'm like, uh, you know, the government does nothing. But uh, what, it is a real insult to people. doesn't matter where you are to, to have paid taxes and to have services that are allotted for people to try to improve their lives and then to not be able to use a park or to not be able to park in your street because you're worried about catalytic converter theft. Or, right? or that there's an RV in your street in front of right. your house or exactly. your business. We right. talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The RVs are now being declared home so they can't be towed. There's, right. there's a proposed legislation for that to make your RV that won't even start so well, since it's not going anywhere, let's make it a house, <laughs> right? Let's make let's make it a house that we can't tow away because yep. somebody's living in there. Yeah. And, and, and these are all symptoms of the disease of of income inequality. Folks who folks who work in Seattle and can't afford to live in Seattle. There are people who are experiencing homelessness, whether it's car homelessness, car camping, or couch surfing for their kids while they live in a tent on yeah, the street, yeah, yeah. who are actually yeah. working in Seattle and can't afford to live in Seattle. So this is all just a byproduct of, of income inequality. You know, and, and we say, well, it makes it hard on small businesses, hard on small businesses, whatever, yada, yada, yada. You know, and when folks talk about going back to the make America great again, and this isn't a political statement at all, but we want to talk about making America great again, right? Yeah. That's yeah. when, in, that's when businesses were taxed, corporations were taxed, the wealthy were taxed at a much higher level, which paid for schools and services and the police department to clear these folks out when needed. And to keep us safe. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have the lowest taxes on the upper echelon in the last hundred years mm-hmm. and the services that keep the community you pay into like it is like you want to live in it. You can't have it both uh, ways. Something's got to break. I have counterpoints to this spike, but I'm much too sleep deprived. That's to- why I chose today. <laughs> Game is cringer based, meaning I will throw out a topic to one Spike O'Neill. He will tell me if he thinks that it is cringe, meaning bad. Or based, meaning good. Spike O'Neill, are you ready to play? Now that I've been given the definitions of what these <laughs> words mean, because even my kids are too old to know what cringe or base mean. No, I'm kidding. They're, they're, they, they, they know. They just don't bother talking to the old man anymore. I'm right, ready to play. They, I'm ready to play, Jack Stein. Do they, uh, do they say, that they, they say, Spike, you cappin'? Do they say that to you? Uh, say, no. Say, Dad, you cappin'? No? no? What, is okay, that? Okay. what does that mean? Does that mean I'm I using can, all can, capitals when I type? Am I yelling I, I through text? I'm going to have to text me. i got to send that Don't to be you capping when you text me, man. That no. means when you're ty- <laughs> typing in all caps, right? I, okay. That's all capping. That's a different thing. I'm going to have to tell you uh, uh, via text message. I can't say it on the <laughs> So, so it, means are you li- it means are you lying? Okay. Are you lying? Okay. okay. So, uh, we all have heard about this Russell Wilson report that he attempted to get not only Pete Carroll fired, but also, what was the other? John uh, Schneider, our GM. John, yeah, John Schneider, GM. And Wyman and Bob talked about this. They said it was pretty despicable. Now, I have to ask you. Now, apparently this is over. I'm not a sports guy, Spike, so you're going to have to fill in the details for me. But basically, Russell Wilson wanted the team to be not only constructed a certain way, but run a certain way. And when he wasn't getting those things, he decided, I'm going to get my own trainer and my own nutritionist, and I'm going to totally isolate myself from everybody else. And it was kind of a, a, a gross power move to try to get the, the higher-ups fired, correct? That's a pretty fair assessment of how things okay. played out. Let's right. let's take one back step and for one second though. When someone is on your team and they're winning, you will tolerate just about anything that they do, whether it's running their mouth in post-game interviews or it's having your own nutritionist, team trainer, team your own publicist 
to make sure that you are the athlete you need to be to win. When you're winning, all can be forgiven. Okay. But the Hawks hadn't been winning of late under Wilson. He had lost a step from his – I mean, and who doesn't? It's the most demanding physical sport, I think, of all time. Mm-hmm. People's injuries uh, – Russell has, has nagging little injuries over the course of his last few years in Seattle, and the team hadn't been up to its Super Bowl contender status. At that point, Russell thinks, okay, the problem's not me. It's the system that I'm forced to work within. It's uh, the okay. run-first mentality. It's, the, it's not less, letting Russ cook, as he'd like to say. And he did. I believe he's denying completely the report that was first published in The, the Athletic. He yeah, he's, uh, he put out a, a tweet, and his lawyer called the report, quote, totally fabricated. Well, you know, I, I know a little bit about the publication The Athletic. And okay. they uh, they know what they're talking about on most instances instances, um, and to just blatantly misrepresent somebody to the extent Russell says they are misrepres- misrepresenting him, that's legally uh, you know not a smart thing to do. Yeah. So okay. so, uh, so there this, you go. Let me. Do you think that this is if it is true? Let's just say hypothetically, if this is there is a situation or a scenario out there hypothetically where this is true. Is it cringe that Russell Wilson decided to try to do this, or is this based that he tried to do this? Um, so cringe is bad, based is good? Cringe is bad, based is good. Okay, cringe, it, then it's definitely cringe. Wow. And I'll tell wow. you what, from my perspective, you've got Pete okay. Carroll and John Schneider who have built a winning formula, first with Russell Wilson, and now apparently without Russell Wilson too, in so much that they can pick talent, they can spot talent, they can get a lot out of their lower uh, round draft picks, more so than any other coaching and GM combination, I think, in our, at least our city's history. But across the NFL, you'd be hard to find a better team. And so you have to ask yourself, who's out of gas? Russell Wilson or the John Schneider-Pete Carroll combo? Well, let me let me offer you a counter-argument here. W- Russell, as the kind of the – he's the maverick of the team, right? He's the he's the go-getter, right? He's the He's the ace, right? He's, he's the elitist. He's okay. He is seeing things on the field, off the field that other people are not seeing. So it, he's seeing as a guy who's been there, who's been in the hot seat, who's been at the Super Bowl. He's seeing things that maybe he sees as being inconsistent, and so he says to himself, "I can make this team a winning team. I just need a coach who's going to listen to me, and I need a GM who's going to provide me with the guys that I need." Sure. So in that way, you could say that this is based because he's actually trying to improve the team as a whole. And this again, this is coming from a guy who does not watch sports at no, all. But you, you get you've what I'm got saying. it dialed in pretty closely now. But right. you're assuming at that point that Russell Wilson is of the stature of a, say, Tom Brady mm, or an yes, Aaron yes. Rodgers or right. even a Peyton Manning yeah. who has the ability to carry a team with his ability alone given just the right tools in the toolbox. And, and maybe Russell Wilson was that guy. You know, in the earliest stages of his career, I mean, Russell threw a great long ball. Russell had legs that could escape defenses. Russell was an elite Hall of Fame quarterback through the first five, seven years of his career. And now you take him to Denver and you see what happens when he is in a system that's not catered to his strengths, that he doesn't have the supporting staff around him and he loses miserably. Now, maybe that was all the coaching staff and the guy's gone in Denver. They've got Sean Payton, who reportedly in the story Russell wanted uh, John and Pete gone, and to get Sean Payton, former Saints mm-hmm. coach, here okay. in Seattle. So Russell really kind of got what he wanted over there anyway. But I, I think it's an absolutely spot on. Tr- I can absolutely see that this would happen. I mean, we found out things about Russell Wilson after the fact from his time. Because when he's here, I mean, the guys, you can't dream of a better community member 
The yeah, guy yeah, who, yeah. every yeah. Tuesday, here's Colin Kaepernick, by comparison, you know, filming his closet full of shoes, and here's Russell Wilson every Tuesday at Children's <laughs> Hospital, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, who we, that's the guy we were painted. That's the picture we were painted. Yeah. That's the citizen of the, of, of the community, the yeah. winning guy on the field, the elite quarterback who took the, the Seahawks to, you know, two Super Bowls in a row, almost two wins in a row. But a lot of people say when you when your defense holds the Broncos in Super Bowl 48, the NFL's all-time leading scoring offense, when your defense holds them to one meaningless fourth quarter touchdown, you and I could have quarterbacked that team to a Super Bowl win. I don't know about me. So well, okay, you, know, you probably could. He just hand the ball off and let the defense shut out the Broncos. You know, and, and the next season when it came down to we got – and Russell, you know, that, that pass at the goal line that was intercepted, should have handed it off to Marshawn, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it was Russell that got us to the goal line with some amazing plays in that game. You know I mean? He's, he's had his day. They've been wonderful years. I personally said, you know, Russell gave me some of my greatest football memories of my life. So when he comes to town, I won't boo him. I'll give him a standing ovation when he walks on the field. Then when the game starts, I'm booing the Bronco quarterback. I don't care who it is. But when he comes to town, I'll give him the cheers he's earned in my as a sports fan. Now, Dave Wyman, you mentioned Dave and Bob. Wyman and Bob having and talking about this to extent. Dave Wyman brings up a great point. You know, now what do you do five years after his career when he comes back to town? Do you oh, celebrate celebrate yeah. him like you would, like you did? Up, you know. Any number of former stars who left and came back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's Bobby Wagner, who's now no longer a Ram. You know, the, the example. LeBron James. Is, well, that kind LeBron, of thing. well, yeah, <laughs> when you come back to the, the city that you had all the glory in. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Does this make it so we can't rule, look at Russell that way anymore? He tried to get Pete and John sacked because he thought he knew better. Yeah, the scheming. I think that people have a hard time with Game of Thrones style scheming. I, I don't think that people like it. I, I think that it shows a lot of character failure even though people there's kind of a romanticism about it i think when it when it comes down to it when when you get outed as a schemer if this is in fact true i think people frown upon it. i think why couldn't you just talk to the guy well why let, you gotta let's look at it from scheme. perspective of how how accurate was russ's point of view okay he's got his own trainer he's got his own nutritionist he's right. got his own pr department within the team he had his own suite of offices at broncos headquarters last year and he wanted Sean oh, Payton. Wow. He wanted Sean Payton to come here, right? Well, now Sean Payton is new the head coach in, in Denver. The first thing he did was get rid of all Russell's extracurricular support staff. So you are a member of the Denver Broncos. You are not above the Denver Broncos. The Denver Broncos is not a team that helps support you. You are just one member of this football team. So maybe Russ was a little delusional and thinking he could get rid of Pete and John, bring Sean Payton in here, and Sean Payton was going to let him do whatever he wanted to do, what he thought was best. Well, that so, was great, Spike, and I, and I still know nothing about sports, so everybody wins. <laughs> All right. So, Spike, okay. you are uh, you're seeing the boss, I am. and you're there with your beautiful daughter. Yeah. So here's a backstory. All um, right. Yeah. Uh, little, Steen, little Steven Van Zandt, Springsteen's guitar player, came into KZOK. Nate Connors and I were doing Afternoon Drive. Uh, we lasted for an hour and 45 minutes. Steven hung out and just played records with us. We had the best time. Uh, my wife brought my daughter down to meet little Steven. And he asked my daughter, you want to go to the show tonight? You're going. And she's like, no, my dad's taking my uncle, as we always do. My brother and I have gone to every show together. <laughs> and Steve's like, no, nah, you got to yeah. go to the show. Give us tickets to the show. So they give my daughter two pit tickets 
to the show. Meanwhile, my brother is now sitting with his wife up in the nosebleeds. I am with my 13-year-old in the pits. Okay? And we go to meet little Steven pre-show. Right. And he writes her a note. Uh, Dear Miss Rosa, uh, Darby's going to be late to school tomorrow. She was up late rocking with the E Street Band, Steve Van Zandt. And, you know, my my daughter's teacher, fifth grade teacher, still has this framed on the wall of her classroom. Wow. So we're in the show and it's the river tour and they do the whole river album. And my 13 year old is just fading. She is just falling asleep standing up. So I take her to the exit and give her to my wife who meets me at the door of the key arena. And she takes my youngest one home and I go back in and watch the rest of the show. Well, when they get to dancing in the dark, I'm about 10 feet from the stage, and little Steven looks right at me and gives me this with his hand, like holds his hand about the length of his guitar, ahead of his car, he goes, where's, where's, you know, where's your daughter? And I look at him, like, my eyes come back, and I'm like, uh, home. I point to the door and, like, <laughs> put my head on my hands, like she's home sleeping. He goes, oh, okay. He was looking to bring my daughter on stage for dancing in the dark. And the next day I get to work and my coworker's like, he looked right at you. He was looking for Darby. He was going to take her on stage. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know. And, you know, and I, I finally told my daughter, like recently I told her that story that she left. And she's like, well, why'd you let me leave? I'm like, you were asleep standing up. He played yeah. for four plus hours. He played after midnight. But that was the, that was my Springsteen mom with my daughter. She was, I was almost Courtney you Cox's should, dad. You should have. Pointed to yourself and then looked at the boss and then helped yeah, yourself on stage. I should have went right here. He right here. Because they grabbed, <laughs> they grabbed a different chubby white guy to go on stage and dance that night. And I'm yeah, like, I could have done mean, that. I got those kind of ham hock dad dance moves. I could have done that anyway. Well, now, thanks Spike, for I hope me. you I, – I sincerely hope you have a wonderful time there. I sincerely hope that you, uh, you know, you get everything that you you want out of it. And I'm I'm very happy for you, Spike. If I can say that, because these moments are few and far between. And I, I wish you nothing but the best when you're well, there. Well, I, I tell you what's the one special thing. It's not just the band. It's not just seeing my my heroes play my favorite music. My brother and I are yeah. going to have we got three seats, and between us will be my oldest daughter's boyfriend. He's going to run the gauntlet. Wow. With, he's going to run, run the gauntlet with my brother and I tonight. We'll see how he holds up. It's going to be great. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm Jack Stein. That's Spike O'Neill, Psycho Matt producing Andrew in the booth. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Thanks so much. What about your-